One of my favorite comic strips is Calvin and Hobbes. You might not be familiar with this diabolical couple, but Calvin is a young boy, and he is filled not just with mischievousness, but he is downright ornery. And Hobbes is his, his companion. It's a stuffed tiger that comes to life only when the two of them are alone. Now, Calvin is diabolical and scheming and uh, irritable, and uh, he can really get under his parents' skin. Well, maybe I just described your child. But nevertheless, he knows exactly how to pull people's strings. Hobbes, the tiger on the other hand, is kind of the voice of reason. He's kind of the philosophical kind. He's, he's calm and, and even-keeled, and, and uh, he knows just what to say when uh, Calvin gets going in the wrong direction. Well, in this particular comic strip, Calvin is doing his math homework, and standing beside him is his companion, Hobbes. And this is what Calvin says. You know, I don't think math is a science. I think it's a religion. And Hobbes, the tiger, begins to scratch his head, and he says kind of inquisitively, a religion? And now Calvin goes off. He says, yeah, all these equations are like miracles. You take two numbers, and when you add them, they magically become a new number. No one can say how it happens. You either believe it or you don't. Hobbes looks at him rather incredulously, and Calvin continues. This whole book, meaning his math book, this whole book is full of things that have to be accepted on faith. It's a religion. And then Hobbes puts his Paul's behind his back, and he says, and in the public schools, no less, call a lawyer. And then the little boy says, as a math atheist, I should be excused from this. But you know, that's the way that people sometimes think about religion. Uh, they think, particularly Christianity and other religions, you just accept it on faith. It's just a little bit of miracle here and a little bit of miracle there, and, and there's no historicity behind it. It's just something that you have to accept by faith. It's just like a, a leap in the dark. That's what Christianity is. It's like math. It's just a leap in the dark. You just accept it by faith, whether there's any historical veracity behind it or not. But that's not what Christianity is at all. Christianity, the meaning of it, the truthfulness of it, has to be received by faith, but it is based on historical events, things that actually happened. The death of Jesus was a historical event. It's one of the most certain events in ancient history. And the bodily resurrection of Jesus itself is a historical event. It's not something that we just have to hope and a prey actually happened. There, there is historical, verifiable evidence that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. What I want to talk with you about this morning, as the rain begins to fall, maybe we'll just stay in here all day, Jesus' atoning death 
and our stubborn pride. Would you open up to Mark chapter 9? We've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, if you're a guest with us today. And just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Jesus cast a demon out of a man's son after the disciples had been unable to do it. And we begin today in chapter 9, verse 30. I'd like to read all the way through verse 37. And again, I'd like to talk with you today about Jesus' atoning death and our stubborn pride. Chapter 9, verse 30 says, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. I want you to notice two things this morning. The first one is this. God's providence, Christ's death, and our sin. It's in these opening verses, 30 through 32. This is the second of three famous passion prophecies that Jesus made in the Gospel of Mark on his way to Jerusalem. The first one is found in chapter 8. Turn back with me to chapter 8 for just a moment. And look with me in chapter 8 and verse 31. This was the first passion prediction, and we looked at it just a few weeks ago. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, notice the similarity between this passion prediction in Mark 8, 31 and the second passion prediction. And yet the second passion prediction does add a thought that this passion prediction does not have. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So he makes it very clear that the religious establishment is going to be against him. And that the religious establishment is going to hand him over to the Romans in order that he would be killed and then three days later rise again. Well, when we go to chapter 9, we see him saying essentially the same thing with one addendum. And that is, he's going to be delivered over. He's going to be handed over. You see it in verse 31. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. That idea of being delivered over carries the thought of betrayal. Jesus is going to be betrayed. He doesn't tell them who's going to do it at this point. Eventually, he will tell them it will be one of them, 
one of the twelve, one of his closest companions, one of his best friends, one of the men that had spent basically three consecutive years with him while he taught, cast out demons, healed the sick, resuscitated the dead. One of them, Judas, is going to betray him. Now, when we read this, we're not struck by it because we're very familiar with it. But this is a prophecy made by Jesus, a prophecy that was fulfilled when he was crucified. So three strategic places in his journey to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Mark, and the third one is in chapter 10, verse 32 and following, three strategic times in three strategic situations, Jesus prophesies that he is going to be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. I want you to notice several things about these opening verses that relate to God's providence, Christ's death, and our sin. The first one is this. The immense importance of our Lord's death and and resurrection. It was so important that on three specific occasions, he lays it out to his disciples. He spells it out for them in no uncertain terms that he's going to be killed and, and on the third day be raised from the dead. And the reason that he does it is he wants them to understand this is the grand purpose in his coming. You can be enamored with his teaching. You can be awed by his miracles. But the grand purpose in Christ's coming is his death and resurrection. He did not come to earth merely to teach or to preach or to work miracles. The primary reason Jesus Christ came to earth was to make satisfaction for our sin, as Sam led us in singing about this morning. It is by his own blood God's righteous anger is satisfied, and we must never forget this. We must never forget the fact that our sin is so diabolical, that our sin is so reprehensible, that our sin before God is so despicable, that Christ had to bear hell in his body on the cross in our place so that we might know forgiveness of sin. And Mark brings this out in three specific occasions as he recounts the teaching of Jesus. The grand object which demands our focus in the history of Jesus' earthly ministry is his death on Calvary and his resurrection from the dead. But we can't look at it dispassionately. We can't look at it unmoved. John Stott put it this way. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Let me read that again as you follow along on the screen. Let me read it very deliberately and clearly. 
Let it sink into the deepest recesses of our heart before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us. We have to see it as something done by us. The old spiritual that says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? We were there driving the nails into his sinless wrist. We were there as the spike was driven through his ankles. We were there as he, as he fought for every breath before dying of asphyxiation and shock. We were there in our sin. We were there as he died in our place. Before we criticize Judas for his betrayal too harshly, we must remember we were there as well. We contributed to his death. But you'll notice I, I entitled this first point, God's providence, Christ's death, and our sin. You see, during the events leading up and culminating on the cross, if we had been watching them dispassionately from a distance, we would have thought God's plan had lost its way. We would have thought that God's plan had come off its wheels that the grand design for which Christ came had been usurped and that now we see his son being crucified by his enemies. See, that's the way we often look at life, primarily from an earthly perspective. We see what's happening to us, we see what's happening around us, and we think everything's out of control. Nothing's working out the way that God wants it to. If God had wanted my life to work out the way that it, he wanted it to, I would be a, a lawyer, an engineer, or a senator, a senator, or a physician, or, or something. I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be in middle management. I wouldn't be shackled in a small home with a lot of kids. But you see, God's grand design, God's plan is being worked out in history, and it's being worked out in our lives as well. And either we fight against it, we kick against the goads, or we embrace God's plan for us. See, we look at the cross, and if we were looking at it in that day and in that time through the eyes of his disciples, we would think, this is insanity. This is insane. This is impossible. How could God's plan be for the crucifixion of his son? Yet God sees where we are and where he wants us to be. And he knows exactly how to get us from point A to point Z. And either we go there embracing his will or we go there fighting against his will. the events leading up to the cross, culminating in Christ's death and resurrection, was the perfect, absolute, perfect execution of God's will for Christ and humanity. 
The interesting thing about all of these passion predictions, all three passion predictions, is each of them is immediately followed by a call to discipleship. Uh, go back with me to chapter 8 for just a moment. In chapter 8, of the first passion prediction we looked at in verse 31. And then go down to verse 34 with me. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus says, I am going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to be a follower of mine, you have got to be willing to be a follower even if it costs you your life. To be a disciple of Jesus means to be a follower of Jesus. So Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die. You've got to be willing to suffer and die. It's a call to discipleship. We see the same thing here. Notice again the passion prediction in verse 31 in chapter 9. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he has been, after he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement. They were afraid to ask him. That is, the news was so bad and so discouraging, they didn't want to know anymore. So they just kept from asking him about it. But beginning in verse 33 and going through verse 37, we come to the second point. And that is Christ's death and a call to humility, a dispute about greatness. He immediately follows up the t his teaching on his death with a call to humble service, with a call to being a disciple. A lot of people want Jesus as Savior, but they don't, they're not interested in Jesus as Lord. But you can't have Jesus as Savior if you're not willing to follow Jesus as Lord. You can't be a follower of Jesus and not be a disciple. In fact, the word disciple means to be a learner. It's one that learns from Jesus. You see, you can't receive the saving benefits of his death and refuse to follow him as his disciple. Discipleship is inextricably linked to salvation. It's not a call to salvation and then a call to discipleship. It is a call to wholehearted commitment to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the disciples hear that Jesus is talking about death, and they get into a discussion about greatness. Jesus is talking about suffering. They're talking about exaltation. Uh, they could not have been any further away in thinking from the Savior than they were in those moments. John Stott puts it this way about discipleship. Stott says, at every step of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. So, the location of this discussion is in Capernaum. Notice at the very beginning of verse 33, they came to Capernaum. You remember, Capernaum is his base of operation. It's where Peter, Andrew, James, and John lived and had a fishing business. 
And Jesus would go out from Capernaum to preach in the outlying villages of Galilee, but then he would return to Capernaum. And then in the latter part of verse 33, he asked them a penetrating question. The question in verse 33b is, what were you discussing on the way? They thought he was out of earshot range. They didn't think there was any way that he could hear the discussion about greatness that was going on among them, but he hears everything. He knows exactly what's taking place. And so he asked them this this piercing, penetrating question. What were you discussing on the way? You know, before we're too hard on the disciples, there's a lot of things we say about people and we say to people that we wouldn't say if Jesus were standing right there. But that shows a lack of theological understanding because Jesus is right there. He is listening to every word we speak. He is watches everything that we do. He sees how we treat the cashier. He listens to our words to the waitress. He knows how we behave. He's watching everything we do. So when we think that we say things about people or to people and we don't sense his presence, that doesn't mean that he's not there. He is right there. He watches what we say to our spouse. He knows the tone of our voice. He listens to the lack of compassion and understanding and sacrifice in our demeanor as we engage them. He's right there. His holy presence should drive us to crucify the flesh and to live a holy life. But they're discussing greatness. So he wants to take this opportunity in verse 34 and 35 to give them some instructions, they remain silent because they're humiliated. It's like he's saying, how could you talk to your wife that way? What were you thinking to speak to her in those terms? What do you say to that? You don't make excuses for it. You just sat there in stunned stupidity, realizing I have sinned against Almighty God in the way that I've way that I've spoken to my wife or the way that I've behaved in a particular incident. And so they they just remain silent rather than trying to make excuses. But he knows what's been going on, so he sits down, and that's the way that a person would often teach in the ancient world, from a position of being seated. So he took a position of authority by sitting down. And notice what he says in verse 35, if anyone wants to be first... He shall be last of all and servant of all. There's nothing wrong with ambition as long as it's holy ambition. There's nothing wrong with ambition as long as it's godly ambition. The problem is for most of us, myself included, our desire ambitiously is for ourselves, for self-promotion, for self-protection, for self advancement. And so he he takes human understanding and he flips it on its head. He takes the kingdom and he pushes kingdom culture forward, and in pushing kingdom culture forward, the disciples learn that kingdom culture is the exact opposite of worldly culture. He says, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. And what it means to be last, it means to be a servant. 
So we ask a question, he gives some instruction, and now he illustrates it. What does he mean by being willing to be a servant of all? So in verse 36, he takes a child. This is an enacted parable. It's a real event intended to teach a lesson. It's a teachable moment. So there's a child in the vicinity, and he he calls the child to himself. And he takes the child, and he sets him before the disciples. And then he places the child on his lap, and he wraps his arms around the child. Now, children were precious to their parents, but they weren't particularly helpful until they were old enough to work. They lived in in a world that as soon as you were able to get out into the fields, as soon as you were able to help your mom with the, with the cleaning, you, ha- you, need, you were needed because life was arduous and hard and difficult. And children, children besides the parents, weren't considered very, a very high value in the ancient world. They couldn't do anything to propel you up the economic ladder. They couldn't propel you up the political scale. And so children were passed by. Children were looked on as insignificant, trivial. They would be pushed to the fringes. And so Jesus says in verse 37, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. That's why we value children here. Uh, That's why when, when, when parents are trying to help their children learn how to sit and listen and learn in church and and they become a little disruptive, we don't become troubled by it because children matter to God. And if that's the way children learn, that's the only way they can learn. Children matter to God, so we don't just put anybody working with our children in Awana or children's worship or, or in the, in the uh, preschool ministry. We want the very best people because children matter to Jesus. My wife is in there this morning. Dr. Elith's wife is is in there many times in a month. Why? Because we value children, and we want our very best people engaged in ministry to children and youth. So whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. However we treat children, whatever sacrifices we make congregationally for children and youth, it is an exact expression of how much we love or don't love Jesus. So someone who says, you know, I'm just not interested in the children in the youth ministry. You're not interested in Jesus. The person that says, I just don't have any, I just don't have the patience for them. You don't have patience with Jesus. For the way you treat children is the way you treat Jesus. That's what he's saying right here. That's what it means to be servant of all. That's what it means to be willing to be last. It means to be willing to minister and care and serve those whom our world considers trivial and inconsequential, whom the world considers worthy of being aborted, whom the world considers worthy of being overlooked. Jesus says, however you treat them, that's how you treat me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And however we treat children is how we treat Jesus, and how we treat Jesus is how we treat the Father. Well, let me just give you a few few thoughts about, about greatness, a few thoughts about 
being last in God's kingdom, let me mention just a couple of things. The first one is this. We see that the desire for prominence resides in even the best of hearts. You know, the disciples loved Jesus. They were willing to, they were willing to, to travel with him and be separated from their family for great periods of time. They were willing to be ostracized, and they were willing to be laughed at by countrymen and family members and friends out of a love for Jesus. So what we discover is that even in those who love Jesus very, very much, there is this residual desire for recognition. There is this insatiable longing for prominence. And we must always be aware of that. Even in the very best of disciples, there resides the sinful yearning for pride of place. Second, those who serve in ministries to the down and out to those whom the world considers trivial and insignificant, you're considered great in the eyes of Jesus. Every pastor in a rural setting ministering faithfully to a congregation of a handful of people out of a love for Christ and a desire to serve His people is considered great in God's eyes. Now, denominationally, our denomination needs to be turned upside down because we measure success by nickel and noses. We measure success by, by buildings and budgets. God measures success by faithfulness and a love for His people. I want you to notice with me, thirdly, This is the kind, of, the kind of battle that has to take place in the human heart. It's the kind of battle that has to take place in the heart of every believer who loves Jesus. This is what it means to crucify the flesh with its passions and desire. The desire to want to be center stage, front stage, up front, being recognized. It's the desire that says, my ministry is more important than your ministry because it's my ministry. And if you don't think your ministry, if you think your ministry is more important than my ministry, the problem is you. Everybody must have the same kind of vision I have. Everybody must have the same passions I have. Everybody must have the same interests I have. That's the way that we think. If we're involved in a particular ministry, that's the only ministry that matters in a church. That's the only ministry that matters in a kingdom. And if you don't care for it as much as I care for it, you've got a problem. But the problem is pride of place. The problem is a myopic vision. What, what we need is to do battle with indwelling sin, and that indwelling sin is pride. Pride that says, my vision is more important than your vision. My ministry is more important than your ministry. But that's something that the Spirit of God and the Word of God 
and a disciple's desire to be godly have to handle. Notice that Jesus ends all of this by talking about receiving Him and receiving the Father. Look in verse 37, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And that takes us back to the reason that Jesus was sent. He was sent to die for our sin and to be raised for our justification. He was sent to die in our place and to be raised from the dead so that we could be forgiven of our sin and that we could be counted as righteous. The grand design for Christ's coming was his death and resurrection. We're going to come to a time of commitment, and it may be this morning that you, you are here, and you're just you're certain that you don't know Jesus, or maybe you aren't certain that you do know Jesus. We'd invite you to come forward, talk to one of our staff members in just a moment, and allow us to introduce you to someone that will talk to you privately and confidentially about, about your spiritual life. Maybe that you've been looking for an opportunity to, to join on with us, and if you'll come forward during this time, we'll introduce you to someone that will talk with you about the membership process and, and how that takes place. Or maybe as we're singing, you're a member of, of this church and, and the Lord has, has spoken something to you. There's something that, that you're confident and, and He made clear to you as we studied this passage this morning. And as we sing in just a moment, you would just stop and in the quietness of your own heart, you would just either confess it to the Lord as sin you would either affirm with the Lord that it's true, uh, that, you would, uh, that you would communicate in some way with Him that you've heard the message of His Word this morning. So I'm going to ask if you'll stand, and I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Sam's going to come and lead us in song. We'll join him in just a moment. But let's pray first. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the worship that we've been able to to participate in and for the word that we've been able to study together. And so we pray in Jesus' name that you would have your way among us. And that you've, you've obviously and always seemed to take your word and apply it to us individually and specifically. And so we pray that we would embrace that application today. Father, for those who don't know you, we pray in Jesus' name they would receive Jesus. And by receiving Jesus, they would receive you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.